Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In law. I'm Jim Vonderheide. The roots of hip-hop sampling culture are much older, but for hip-hop producer Questlove, one key turning point came on a Thursday evening in 1986. In an interview for Creative License, Peter DeCola and Kimbra McLeod's new book, Questlove says, every well-known producer I know, that's the event that changed their lives. Everybody's just ashamed to say it. How do you? Six. How would you like to be on my new album? Yeah. What sound do you think a draft makes? <laughs> Beautiful. I got you in my Sinclavia. <laughs> that was Rudy Huxtable on Animal Sounds and Stevie Wonder at the sampler panel. A few minutes later, Rudy's brother, Theo Huxtable, made network history, along with the real star of the scene, the Casio SK-1. Who's the singer? Well, I, I want to be. Can you rap? Yeah. yeah. What's that? Go ahead and rap for me one time. No. <laughs> what would you say at a party? Jamming on the one. Jamming, jamming on the one. Jamming on the one. The SK-1, also used by RZA of the Wu-Tang Clan and countless others, was an affordable version of a sampler, which along with the turntable was rapidly becoming the distinctive instrument of the hip-hop artist. It's been a quarter of a century. The copyright law is still catching up to the new kind of intertextuality that this technology makes possible. The idea that music can be made simply by capturing and resituating electronically recorded sounds made by someone else. Here to talk with us about his book is Peter DeCola. He's an associate professor of law at Northwestern, and the book is Creative License. Well, hi, Peter. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Law. Um, well, thanks for having me, Jim. Very interested to talk about your book, Creative License. Uh, before we get to that, maybe you could tell us a little about your own context and uh, your co-author's context. Uh, so we know how this uh, fits into the, your career so far and who you are, where you come from. Sure. So um, I started this book when I was a grad student at University of Michigan um, in uh, law and economics. I um, met my co-author, Kembrew McLeod, who's a communications professor at the University of Iowa, through an organization I've worked with for a long time now uh, called Future of Music Coalition. Uh, that's based in D.C., but which has, you know, um, board members and employees uh, in different different cities, kind of a virtual nonprofit and that works on uh, music and, and media, uh, doing research and advocacy and things. And so this was a, a research project that Future Music Coalition um, sort of dreamed up. You know, oh, hey, maybe we, we could get uh, Peter and Kembrew together. And initially, we were going to work with uh, a guy named Siva Vadyanathan, but he went on to write this book about Google, 
I don't, you may have heard of the, the Googleization of everything and why we should worry. So Siva wasn't able to stay with us on this project. But anyway, because Siva couldn't do it, then my role kind of expanded, and uh, that's you know that, so that's how it happened. And we we um, uh, so the the book you know but books take a long enough time that now I'm I teach law at uh, Northwestern, um, but we just you know and the book was just published this uh, this past spring. So. Uh, uh, you know, Kebru's got tenure now. <laughs> I'm a professor now, but you know, that was how, that was the uh, that was the beginning. And at the time, you were studying law or studying a different field. Well, I was in. I was so I had actually just finished the law part of my um, sort of dual degree program. So I had finished law school, and that was the summer we started talking about the project back in uh, 2005, and then. Um, I was still, but I was still writing my dissertation in economics. So uh, for those couple of years, those next couple of years, I was working on this and then also working on my dissertation. How much of it came out of a, a music perspective? Are you guys musically inclined in the same way? So we, we actually don't have this, exactly the same taste. I mean, Kemper is, a, is much more expert about the hip hop um, world musically. You know, he, he just has a much deeper knowledge. Uh, he's from Virginia Beach, and so that's a that's a big hip hop scene. Uh, I you know I'm really interested in a lot of the uh, the the I mean I certainly knew about the famous acts like Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, etc. Um, you know I had liked those you know since I was a kid, but I you know I I'm, I don't have the same kind of depth of knowledge. I, I know I knew a fair amount about some of the electronic acts we talked. Uh, talked about in the book, um, people like um, the DJs, you know, Cold Cut, and you know, eventually Girl Talk. I mean, I certainly know that kind of music uh, pretty well. So it, it definitely comes out of both of us being big music fans, uh, you know. But for me, this was like a new um, kind of a new scene to think about, given that we do focus on hip hop a lot, in addition to the electronic and dance music, and. Uh, I, I think that, you know, for me, that, that the interest came sort of academically and in terms of making certain connections, that there are these people in different genres making music by borrowing snippets from existing pieces of music. And once I saw how copyright law was going to intersect with that musical practice, I saw that that was going to be a really interesting topic. And it, it's led to some really interesting uh, lawsuits. Um, but it became, you know, clear pretty quickly that there were interesting questions to ask about whether copyright law has gotten in the way of this kind of music. And so I, I, I don't think you can, have, you know, for me, I can't really separate out the music fan part because anything, anytime we've got a, a, a suggestion that maybe copyright law is discouraging certain kinds of music, I think that's really motivating. You want to figure out, okay, is that really true? What are the workarounds? You know, what are, what are musicians able to do um, uh, and not able to do? in the face of these uh, legal restrictions that then sort of flow into business restrictions. Terrific. Well, it sounds like we're uh, touching on the, the sense of how there's a big issue here. There's a big question for your book to address. Um, before we get to that, let me ask, sure. uh, do you accept that playing a turntable is like playing an instrument? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So last night uh, at the Pitchfork Festival, I saw DJ Shadow uh, along with, you know, 10 or 15 or maybe 20,000 other people. And it was really cool because they had uh, cameras on him at all angles. 
that they were broadcasting so you could see his hands, see all the different things he was working with. Uh, you know, so at one point he's, he's, you know, playing with a virtual turntable. He's doing a lot with mixers and sliders. Uh, but he's also got like a, one of those old, it's a, it's a newer machine, but it's like those old style drum pads that Casio used to sell that you actually play with drumsticks. So he's triggering sounds just using actual drumsticks playing like a drummer. So if you watch a guy like that who's playing something that's sort of like a virtual version of a, a real instrument, someone who's, you know, uh, using these complicated samples as his, you know, his notes, his instruments, I, I think it becomes pretty clear that he's a musician. Um, that isn't a big question for me. And we don't, you know, we certainly try to explain in the book, you know, that that's our perspective and, and why that is. Um, but that's kind of more of a starting point than like an argument that we're making. You know, I think lots of other writers have focused more on the, uh, you know, on defending sampling as a musical practice or whatever. That's not really our aim in this book. We're just kind of starting from there. This is the kind of music that people make and, uh, it's a music, it's a kind of music that people want to listen to. And from my sort of economist perspective, that's good enough, you know? Absolutely. And then the question of how the law feels about that. It sounds like copyright law doesn't isn't built for that artistic uh, mode. Copyright law isn't maybe initially or ever subtle enough to understand how that can be the case. And that sounds like your book arises from that nexus. Yeah, I mean, the law has made, you know, I don't want to criticize copyright law too much. It's a, it's a hard problem. But the idea... You know, here's where the difficult, the root of the difficulty is that copyright started, you know, being about whole works, a whole book, a whole painting, a whole composition of music. And, you know, now because people, you know, and I think this has always been true, people have been interested in using smaller subparts of works. Um, and so, you know, when you get in that situation, now you have a quite, you have sort of a boundary question of how small a piece of a larger work should you still consider to be protected? And that's just a hard kind of line drawing problem, right? Like, I think most people would agree that if your, you know, quote unquote sample, you know, wasn't really a, a snippet, let's say it was 99% of a song or 99% of a book. Well, you know, I think most people would agree that that should still be copyright infringement. Okay, so now you go down 75%. Yeah, that's probably still copyright infringement. 50% depends on the work. You know, you might start getting into some debates. 25%, you know, and so it goes on down. Where do you draw the line? Um, and maybe you could tell us about the Bridgeport case and that uh, sure. example so, right. of that. So that, Now, what's tricky, okay, so I, ta I mentioned musical compositions. There are two kinds of copyrights. We should we should sort of back up and start. Sure. You know, before we do Bridgeport, we have to explain this part, which is that there are two kinds of copyrights that consist in a single piece of music, and that wasn't always the case, uh, but it's been the case for for uh, 40 years almost uh, federally. So there have always, always we've always protected sheet music. We've always protected musical compositions. Uh, initially, they were just considered writings for the most part, and then they were protected explicitly starting in 1831. So the composition is the sheet music, the structure of the work, uh, music and lyrics is one way that people sometimes talk about it. Um, but think about that as the sheet music. Then you've got the sound recording. And those initially weren't protected, partly because when, uh, you know, when the United States was born, uh, recording techn technology didn't exist. 
Um, but even for a long time after recording technology existed, people didn't uh, think of it, you know, it wasn't protected by copyright. It was just because there were manufacturers who made, you know, vinyl discs or acetate discs, um, or before that, you know, piano rolls or whatever it was that they were using to reproduce particular performances of musical compositions. Um, that was just something that was sold, you know, sort of by the copy. It was a physical product. It wasn't something copyrighted. But as concerns about piracy grew and as, you know, electronics manufacturers started distributing ways to um, make, you know, perfect or near-perfect copies of recordings, the industry became concerned about bootlegging, became concerned about home taping, et cetera. And, so, and eventually the federal government responded in 1972 by protecting sound recordings. So... In the end, what we have now is a system where when you he you hear you just hear music, right? It's just one un you know unitary thing that you hear coming out of your speakers, but it's got two copyrights in it at the same time. It's got a protection for the composition and protection for the sound recording. Those can be owned by different people, and the copyrights have certain different qualities to them that that um, you know the, the laws the legal rules can be different for each of them. And, and so, each and each anything you're listening to. I guess used to have eight tracks of different stuff that could be recorded separately. Now it has 32 or 64 potential tracks. Yeah, or even more. recordings, yeah. Potentially, right. And so right, the, the act of going from, in some sense, the sheet music, and it doesn't have to be uh, written down to be protected um, under current law, so I don't want to use that analogy too strongly, but the idea is you conceptually think of the sheet music, the structure, the underlying structure of the composition as being one right. And then whatever they do uh, to record it, whether it's on one track or four tracks or eight tracks, you know, that's the sound that's the sound recording piece. So now we can talk about this landmark case, Bridgeport, in 2005. Um, but again, to talk about Bridgeport, you have to explain what, it, what question it was answering that hadn't been answered before. So there have been lots of cases about, did you take too many notes from the sheet music? You know, you, let's say you borrow a melody play it yourself, you do your own performance of it. Sometimes you can get sued by the owner of a composition that says, hey, that's that's mine. So a recent example would be that, uh, you know, Joe Satriani felt that the melody to Viva La Vida by Coldplay um, infringed on a composition of his, that it was the same melody. He, he didn't contend that Coldplay had, had uh, sampled him digitally. They weren't using his recording, but uh, he felt that the melody was very similar and the harmony as well, but the chord progression was the same, and so on. And so, you know, that, that made the news. Uh, the complaint settled out of court, you know, so we don't know, you know, what Coldplay agreed to or how much they paid Joe Satriani, if anything. But anyway, that's just a, a recent example that was popular uh, on YouTube. Okay, so we, we have cases like that all the time where people are saying, hey, you took part of the composition. And we'd even had cases where someone had sampled another musician, but it was the composer who sued. Because when you sample something, you're basically using both a composition and a recording. You've got two potential things you're infringing. And it just ha it just so happened that all the lawsuits uh, that sort of faced this kind of question about how much did you take, was it too much, had all dealt with the composition side. So Bridgeport is the case where we finally deal with the sound recording side. How much of a sound recording is too much to take? And this was a case involving uh, the hip-hop group N.W.A., and uh, they had used a sample from the funk, uh, you know, legend George Clinton. Uh, they used they used a piece of his 
song. Uh, the, the song they used was called uh, Get Off Your Ass and Jam. And I think the... Um, uh, now, now I'm, oh, yeah, and then the, um, the NWA song is called Three Miles and Run. So... Which was this, used in a, a movie later yeah, on, right? So let's put that aside yeah, for a minute. We'll get to it's, that next, yeah. You know, so the, the, the owners of the movie were sued as well as, the, as, as NWA's record label, um, but let's not worry about that part of it just yet. So that that just makes it sort of complicated. The point is just how much was taken. And the NWA's sample of George Clinton is only 1.9 seconds long. And it's really quite hard to recognize. Uh, if you listen to it, you, you know, you can listen to it, play it for a class, play it for a big crowd, eight times in a row, ten times in a row, just keep looping it back, saying, here's the sample. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? And it's really hard to hear. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of mixed into the background. Um, it's sort of like a, uh, a guitar part that's being used almost like a, as it's looped, it's being used to sound almost like a siren or something, just part of sort of a, um, a noisy background. So the court, you know, was faced with this question of, hey, maybe, maybe 1.9 seconds is too small to protect. And what the court decided is that nothing is too small to protect. So a tenth of a second, that would be copyright infringement. A hundredth of a second, that would be copyright infringement, and so on. So any amount. They just said, if you sampled, that's copyright infringement. So that's in contrast to the, the possibility when you use someone else's composition. Let's say that you use uh, two notes that someone else used. You, know, you, you use uh, you know, a melody that includes C going up to the next G. Okay? Courts have generally decided that that is too short. That the you know the interval going from C to G is something that's a basic building block that everyone can use. Um, so the but in Bridgeport the court decides you know what sound recordings are different. Using a sound recording means something different than using a, a piece of a composition, and so we're going to say that any any taking from a sound recording is potentially copyright infringement. Um, and so that was really surprising to people that there was no such thing as uh, what the law calls a de minimis use. Um, and, you know, we, so in the book, the book is based on interviews with, you know, with lawyers, with producers, with musicians, etc. So one of the big sets of questions we asked them was, you know, was about this case and how did you react to it? And it's really interesting because even a lot of the lawyers who support strong copyright protection, you know, felt that this case was surprising, felt that uh, it reached the wrong result. Um, we talk to a lot of copyright professors who think that the, the doctrinal result is just wrong, uh, that, that, the law, that the copyright statute doesn't really suggest that this should be the rule, that any amount of a sound recording is enough to be copyright infringement. But um, that's where the case stands, you know, and it's been... So that was a very new case when we started our research in 2005, 2006. Um, the, the final version of the opinion was published in 2005, but, uh, you know, there hasn't been another case to replace it in the six years, you know, that I've been looking at this stuff. And I don't particularly anticipate there being another case anytime soon uh, because with this, you know, really um, strong precedent saying that any tiny amount is copyright infringement, there's no reason to bring the case in any other circuit. You know, if you're a plaintiff, you go to where this court was. This was the Sixth Circuit, which covers... Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, and Michigan. Uh, and the Tennessee part is important because it's ba- the court is based in Nashville. Nashville is a very pro-copyright kind of town. Sure. 
Uh, the judges are pretty friendly to copyright. The music industry is, is really important to the economy there and to the cultural life of the place. And so um, why bring a case anywhere but Tennessee? You know, why do it? Um, you know, because you can bring a copyright suit wherever the infringing recordings are sold. Uh, in today's economy, most recordings are sold all over the United States. So you have your choice. So, you know, one of the arguments we make in the book is that not only is Bridgeport a surprising precedent and not only is it a really expansive view of copyright, but it's also not going away. It's important to think about this as, yeah, this is the rule, this is the state of the law, at least for now. Um, so, But it does seem that there's the other commonsensical piece of doctrine. One commonsensical piece of doctrine with cheap music was the de minimis exception. You just took a couple of notes, what's the big deal? And it's right. not physical. Right. Uh, but if you physically take a sound recording, Bridgeport says you're on the hook. Now, the other common sense uh, thing that many people's intuition would say is this is only three notes. Isn't that fair? I mean, maybe you could talk about the fair use doctrine. Yeah, exactly. a possible so, answer to Bridgeport. Yeah, that's a great question. So there is always this, uh, this exception floating around in copyright um, called fair use. And it's in the statute. Um, it's a, um, it's, you know, it's meant to cover a lot of ground. Lots of things can be fair use. But what the, the, the consequence of calling something fair use, let's sort of start at the end, right? The end result, if something is fair use, means that you don't have to pay for it, that it's not copyright infringement. And so examples of fair use include quoting from a book when you're reviewing it, um, you know, not necessarily an unlimited amount, but some amount from a book, whatever you need to sort of comment on the book. Uh, educational uses of copyrighted works are often fair. Uh, you know, showing an image, playing a song in class, uh, I certainly consider it to be fair use uh, most of the time. Um, and another category is this idea that if you take uh, a copyrighted work and transform it, uh, that that can be fair use. So if you take something and just use it for a really different purpose and add it in, um, as a piece of your own work, um, that can be fair use. And there are cases in different kinds of media, ranging from visual art to music to books, you know, that have constituted fair use. Um, so even a collage. Yeah, sometimes, you know, but it really depends on the court you get. And uh, the, the really tricky thing about fair use is that it's a case-by-case -case determination. The courts do not set up a rule that says, oh, so now from now on, collage is fair use. Uh, the courts instead analyze just one case at a time. What does this do in context? And, it, you know, obviously people, you know, lawyers and, uh, you know, artists can try to take advantage of precedent and say, oh, this is, a, I have a strong case because my case is like this other one. But I, I think fair use is sort of, I mean, you know, the law is always like that to an extent. But um, I think that fair use is particularly context dependent and you see a lot of variation in the cases. You see a lot of Wow, that, you know, in my copyright casebook that I teach, you know, we take two visual art cases about fair use, and they just look the same. It was literally the same company that got sued in two different regions of the country, and the two courts, and they're doing basically the same thing, and the two courts go in opposite directions. So you, you see that kind of thing a lot. So the issue with fair use in Bridgeport is, hey, maybe sampling, maybe putting this George Clinton sample into a collage in the background of NWA's track, maybe that's, uh, you know, maybe that's fair use. Maybe they've transformed it in some sense by, you know, recontextualizing it. And what the court says, the Sixth Circuit decides 
that that might be true, uh, but they don't have the information they need to decide whether it's fair use. And so they say, listen, we're going to explain that as a baseline, any amount of take, any amount taken from a sound recording is copyright infringement. And if when we send this back to the lower court, uh, they want to think about fair use, that's fine. So they just put in a footnote that says, we're expressing no opinion on fair use. Um, the upshot of that, though, is that the case settled. Like once NWA lost the big question of whether, you know, that what they had taken was too small or not, they decided not to spend day in their record label and the movie studio that had used, uh, you know, for the movie that had used the song, all decided we're going to settle this case. We're not going to continue to spend money to litigate fair use. It's an uncertain result. We don't want to be, you know, we're not going to be the ones to decide this question. Maybe they just couldn't couldn't afford it, couldn't justify it business-wise. I think that's perfectly understandable. And so, uh, although unfortunate for us, right, so we don't learn whether, as a matter of copyright law, this could constitute fair use and thus the, re the result would just reverse and the sample would be fine and they would be fine for having used it without paying for it uh, because it was so small. And instead, we just don't know what the fair use answer is. And just like I was saying that there hasn't been another case to disagree with Bridgeport or overturn Bridgeport, there hasn't been a case that dealt with fair use either. There hasn't been a case where someone said, okay, I'm going to defend fair use and uh, insist that what I took was okay. So we just don't know. That's a big question mark about whether sampling can constitute transformative fair use or how often it could or how, we're, how, how one could decide. There is some doctrine, isn't there, on fair use applying to parodies also? I mean, there's a recon recontextualizing... Which seems sure. To, that's very tricky because parody is a game, you know, it's a playful right. thing, and that's something courts might have a hard time coming to terms with if you're really taking something, recontextualizing it, and not exactly mocking it, but you know, setting up a playful relation to it. That's the kind yeah, of thing I agree. that seems parodic. Yeah, I agree. And so, obviously, what copyright lawyers do is they say everything's a parody. If you're yeah. trying to argue fair use, you say, "Oh yeah, I was making fun of it." You know, I was mocking it in some sense. And you try to stretch the definition of parody because you're exactly right. There are cases, including a Supreme Court case um, involving the hip-hop group Two Live Crew, uh, where they did a parody of a Roy Orbison song, and the court said, yeah, that, that can be fair use, you know, even though they didn't pay for it, even though they used, a big, they used big chunks of the composition. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, parody is one category. I think a lot of sampling doesn't comfortably fit into that category. For instance, in the NWA song, I don't think they're paradizing George Clinton. You know, I think they just, they were using the sound as part of a, a collage, as he said, in the background, you know. And so parody isn't going to be able to do all the work. Um, and I think that's that, that's the difficult thing about fair use. It's, it's such a broad doctrine that applies to so many different situations. You know, I, you know, People talk about it as like the safety valve on copyright. You know, copyright has expanded in a lot of different ways. Uh, copyrights last longer. Uh, they, it's, they're, it's easier and automatic to get them uh, now, whereas you used to have to register to get them. And, you know, the, the amount of subparts of your work, of snippets or samples of your work that, that are protected seems to have expanded as well, so that any, you know, any little piece is going to count as copyright infringement. And Fair use is supposed to be the safety valve that says, oh, no, we want to leave enough room for people's uh, free expression, for people's speech. And, you know, without, I, I just think that's a lot to ask 
of that doctrine to be the, the sort of free speech safety valve because it's expensive to litigate fair use. It's expensive to vindicate your fair use rights. And in an industry as diverse as the music industry, it's also difficult to to point to like a best practice and say, hey, this is usually considered fair use. We as a business, you know, we as the music business kind of agree that these kinds of uses are, are fair use. Um, that doesn't, you know, that, that kind of consensus hasn't developed. Um, so the, the copyright professor, Peter Yazzie, who we talk about, we interview and we talk about in the book, you know, he's worked with documentary filmmakers to kind of develop like an industry standard best practice to say, you know, this is when something is likely to be fair use, this is when it's not, and to kind of get the movie industry and the companies that insure the movie industry against uh, copyright infringement lawsuits. He's gotten them to agree, um, he and his co-author, Pat Ofterheide, I should mention as well, um, they've, they've sort of worked to get these communities together to help, that, to help facilitate their developing a set of best practices. That has not happened in the music industry. The music industry is bigger. It's a more diverse community than the documentary filmmaking community, although that may be, I mean, not that the documentary filmmaking isn't diverse, but music is just, is just bigger, and there are different genres, and it's a different style, whereas documentary kind of limits it to at least a certain kind of set of norms. Um, whereas, you know, sampling goes on in hip-hop, in electronic, in rock, in jazz, in, you know, et cetera. It's just those, and those are all different kind of subcultures. And it's hard to get everyone at the table and say, okay, we're going to agree that this is fair use. We're going to act like it's fair use. And if someone wants to sue us, we'll be able to tell the court, hey, we were just doing what was normal in our community. You know, and that would actually potentially help their, their chances in a lawsuit. And maybe the industry would be willing to sort of, um, you know, sort of live and let live with certain kinds of uh, uses. But that hasn't happened yet. So I, I think that right now, fair use isn't able to function. Uh, to do what we want if we want it to sort of be this uh, this kind of case-by-case safety valve. And when we... The I should mention, Sorry. Oh, the community is divided vertically, too, right? I wonder if that's ever an issue where the uh, artist might say, remix away, you know, like I've forgotten who it was in the book who says, you know, have at it. I expect people in my hip-hop community to sample yeah. my work. But the studio might see it differently. Uh, you know, or whoever owns the rights along with it might see it differently. You can't necessarily rely on a statement like that to oh, do exactly. the sampling. Exactly, exactly. So the right copyrights, you know, just as a condition of being a recording artist, you generally have to sign away your copyrights to the record label. So it isn't it isn't the artist's decision often uh, in terms of allowing things. If the label wants to say no, that's going to be a no. Now the some contracts actually do let the artists have a veto over samples. If you're, if, you're, if you're an artist who has the opposite perspective, sometimes they have the power to say no, but you're right that they don't have the unilateral power to say yes. You know, it's not, it's not symmetrical. Um, so, you know, the system is designed, it's a property system. You know, the system is designed to allow people to deny permission, you know, to, and to demand their own price for samples or for, you know, for anything that would be an infringing use of their copyrighted work. And it's not really designed to, you know, to allow, you know, to allow more flexibility. Do you think the technology and distribution changes of the, uh, you know, online music might change that a little bit, that the artistic communities uh, can do more without the studios and without the property perspective? Obviously, they yeah, still need to get paid. But. I think that's possible. Um, that's definitely true, and there are ways that record labels have used technology to say, 
sure, you know, sample us or sample us. Here's the price. We'll just name it up front. You can see, you see that sometimes. So there are ways technology can facilitate that. And sure, as people move away from record labels, you might think that sampling would get easier. But the problem is, uh, the default in copyright is that you can't sample, that it's infringement. You know what I mean? Like everything is protected as a default. And so unless a recording artist makes it really easy to know that that A, they own the copyright, and B, that they're okay with sampling, uh, it it, it doesn't do any practical good for the the sampling community. Um, There is this um, type of license you can put on your work. You can get what's called a Creative Commons license. And that's kind of an off-the-shelf license that that moves you away from the default, like everything is protected. And so, so instead of all rights reserved, it's some rights reserved, uh, as the people at Creative Commons uh, sometimes say. So you can reserve the right to, you know, to not, you know, you can say, I, it's okay with me if people use this work non-commercially. It's okay if you want to sample it, but you know, I want to make sure that you credit me. So I'm going to ask you for something extra that copyright doesn't give you actually. And I'm going to reserve the right, you know, to uh, perform it or whatever else. You know, you can do, you can uh, specify different kinds of protection. So you could imagine that artists would adopt Creative Commons licenses and say, yeah, sure, sample it, just make sure you give me credit. Uh, You can imagine a world where everyone moves there, you know, but I think that would take a really long time uh, because the major label system, you know, I've been studying the music industry not for that long, uh, maybe since I started grad school, so 10 or 11 years. Uh, Back then, though, everyone was saying that the music industry was dead, you know, some people said it would be dead in five years. Some people said 10. Some people said 25. So the people who said 25 maybe could potentially be right. <laughs> but so far, the labels aren't going anywhere. You know, they're still very, very important players. They still hold a ton of, of catalog. You know, they own the copyrights for just about all the most popular music that's been released over the last few decades. And, you know, they work hard to extract value from that catalog, and that catalog is still what a lot of people are interested in listening to and a lot, what a lot of people are interested in, in sampling. So I don't really expect the major labels to go away either. So sort of two hurdles. You know, first of all, getting artists to, to move away from their labels and then adopt these Creative Commons licenses or something similar, and then also sort of shifting to a world where we're not still just totally fascinated with the music of the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know. Doesn't seem too likely. I, the example it I was struck by in the book was the Gray album, uh, yeah. as an example of uh, there's not, still quite current. Um, do you want to describe that real quick? I thought that was really interesting. Sure. The Gray album is a mashup between the Beatles' White album and Daisy's Black album. Uh, so pretty good joke. Uh, it's by a DJ named Danger Mouse who has gone on to have a lot of really successful projects. Um, you know, he's part of um, you know Gnarls Barkley. He's in group Broken Bells, you know, he's had a lot of different projects. He's got a new thing out this year. Um, but the Grey album, he just released in a very small amount. He didn't, uh, he may have sold a few, couple hundred copies, or I don't even know if they were selling them or just giving them away. Uh, but, you know, people got this record, put it online and shared it. They just loved the combination of the Beatles, uh, Beatles you know, music taken from the Beatles and then Jay-Z's uh, raps, his vocals, over it. And it's the kind of thing know, that seems like right. it could be parody. You know, when you say mashup, I tend to think that, I think of Broke Back to the Future on 
the internet, you know, uh-huh. that are clearly a parody where you're taking something and transposing it. Yeah, there's place. that's right. There's something playful about that mashup to say yeah, I'm kind of teasing the Beatles and acting, you know, like uh, you know, putting them together with something much more cutting edge, much more today, you know, and kind of. Um, but it, but it's not clear that the Beatles are being mocked, you know. Um, you know, that'd be an interesting argument. What ended up happening is that the Beatles record label said, you know, they sent Danger Mouse a cease and desist order. He ceased and desisted. Uh, but people, because the thing was out on the internet, you know, I think people continued to download, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of copies of this thing. Uh, Someone made a video of one of the tracks. Uh, the video is quite creative. It matches up. Uh, you know, some video of Jay-Z with some video of the Beatles from Hard Day's Night, uh, the movie they made. Nice. Um, yeah. And and then, but then an animator kind of takes it and, and plays with it and, you know, does a thing where John does some break dancing on the stage and stuff. You know, they get an actor to kind of wear a mop top and and uh, and do some do some moves. So, you know, that's a fun video to look up. But, do you, you know, think, that... Let me ask you about that, because I wonder if the law sees parody as necessarily... Mocking or satirical. I think there's. A, I mean, Nabokov said uh, satire is a lesson and parody is a game. You know, uh-huh. that playfulness. Going back to Dante working with Virgil, there's there's a cut down there, but there's also deep respect. Do you think the law sees parody as necessarily mockery only, or can there be some mixing of of uh, one-upsmanship? but also deep respect for previous artists. I, I think that if you read, so the key opinion here is this two live crew case. Uh, it's an opinion written by Justice Souter. He certainly got into uh, some of the things you're talking about, um, about the difference between parody and satire mm. and making that distinction. That's all in the opinion. Uh, you know, those of us who are not uh, humanities PhDs like myself find that distinction a little bit obscure. I think, but sure, I can I can get there with you. I think. <laughs> well, we're talking about not, we're talking but, about musical artists, right? The artist language yeah. has to be spoken a little bit for the law to understand what's going on. Well, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, it's just going to be that's going to be hard for yeah. you know your average judge and to understand. Uh, it's going to be hard to carry that out to the world and say, okay, this is what you can do, and this is what... And, I, and by the way, I shouldn't imply that... I mean, satire might be fair use as well. It's just that the court said parody had a stronger case for fair use. So, um, and a stronger case for using more of the work in order to, uh, you know, in order to mock it or to critique it. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I'll, take, I'll take your point. I, I think that that's, that's true, that there might be some flexibility for how you think about parody and certainly lawyers uh you know try to argue for that but i think that uh in the end you still bump up to the the issue of who is going to bring this case who is going to defend a fair use you know who's going to bring a fair use defense when they're sued for copyright infringement and who's going to litigate it all the way so that we get a court opinion that we can read and that can give us more guidance about what what uh, musicians can do and what they can yeah big procedural hurdle i was thinking about that in terms of uh, the doctrine that got invented, I guess, or maybe it's statutory, in 1910 or so, that in the procedural uh, world, early on, it was possible to say, all right, here's what a cover is. And you can can have this concept of a cover performance, which is fine. It's very cheap, and you pay some fee, but really it's not uh, 
ripping somebody off if you're a cover band. And that yeah, was, they did that back then. Yeah, it was almost... I, I sort of think it was an unintended consequence, though. I don't know that Congress was thinking about cover versions. Okay. Exactly. What they were worried about more directly... They weren't worried about the worried about it from a creative perspective, in my view, like in terms of being able to reinterpret someone's cover and that that's a good thing and that that should be cheap and easy, um, you know, as long as you pay this fixed statutory fee. What it came out of was that the composers, who at that time were the most powerful element in the music industry, you know, as I said before, sheet music has been protected for a long time. The composers held all the cards when the piano roll companies came out and wanted to manufacture piano rolls to, so that people could reproduce uh, other people's performances of compositions. Uh, the, compo- the, the composers uh, you know, got together, had, had organizations, and didn't want to license these things or wanted to charge an exorbitant fee. And so the reason uh, Congress made it uh, this sort of automatic license for creating a recorded version or what, you, uh, what the, you know, the jargon is, uh, a mechanical reproduction of a composition, they just wanted to make sure that the composers would uh, license. You know, they were and they were sort of punishing them for not having license sooner. And in fact, there's a Supreme Court case. The piano roll thing went to the Supreme Court first, and the Supreme Court said, you know what? A piano roll isn't a reproduction. It doesn't count as infringement. And then Congress, the next year, revised the statute in 1909 to say, okay, it is infringement, but instead of being able to name your price, and instead of being able to deny permission, we're going to have this statutory fee. Um, so it was like a compromise between punishing the composers in an extreme way, but also between leaving the record uh, companies and the piano roll companies, you know, on their own trying to get uh, licenses, which appear, you know, which appeared difficult at the time, and it seemed like the composers were being recalcitrant. So well, that can never happen today. That kind of top-down solution, I gather. Uh, I don't know. I mean, and it's not that the parties weren't at the negotiating table. It wasn't that they weren't involved in Congress. It was just, I think, you know, the, the history of this is, you know, really, really interesting. But to keep it short, I, I mean, I think, yes, they were at the table, but you know, I think Congress became and, and the court and you know, prodded by the court's decision, you know, that that just according to the old statute mechanical reproductions didn't count as reproductions. You know, it kind of was the interplay between this legal doctrine and then the context of these licensing negotiations not going well uh, that that created that result. I don't know that, and there are other compulsory licenses that Congress has created. Uh, there are a handful. Uh, you know, there's one for jukeboxes. There's one for, uh, you know, there's something that functions like that for webcasting, although it doesn't work exactly the same way for internet radio. There are, there are a couple other examples, but uh, it's a solution that Congress uses only in particular circumstances where they feel like, I, you know, I think generally they use it when they feel like licensing uh, isn't going to happen, isn't going to get the product uh, that people want out of the streets, you know. Um, but it, it's an interesting issue because what it leaves us with is this strange contrast where to cover an entire composition, use every note, every chord progression, all the lyrics, that's cheap. That costs you yes. 9.1 cents per copy right. sold. Whereas if you're going to take 1.9 seconds, that includes three notes of a composition, and 1.9 seconds of the sound recording. Now, granted, it is two rights that are being infringed, not just one with a sample. But you're taking such a smaller piece, right? So in one dimension, it's more you're taking because you've infringed two copyrights. 
But in another dimension, it's much, much less, because instead of taking the whole thing, you're taking a tiny piece. And sampling is really expensive. I mean, you know, maybe this is the part where we sort of pivot to talk about what I think is sort of the heart of the... I mean, what we've been talking about is the really key background. And then I think the heart of the book, what the contribution of the book is, is that we interviewed people who obtain, try to obtain licenses for sample and talk about how hard that is and how expensive it is. So a sample, rather than 9.1 cents per copy, a sample might cost you 100% of your revenue from the song, gotcha. you know, yeah. which you know, for a typical artist could be you know, a dollar, a dollar and a half, something like that. Um, and you break it down and, in several cases to show that songs of the last 20 years, certain of them could never, they'd be huge money losers, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, when you think about the prices, so and, and the prices can either work as like a royalty rate or it can just be a, a flat fee, right? So the, the most you should, you know, the number to have in mind for like, if you sample a really famous artist, you're going to be paying $100,000 or more is, is what we heard from all our interviewees. And, and um, you know, that's an enormous, that's an enormous amount of money if you're trying to sample more than one person. That adds a lot to your recording budget. And, you know, it's, it's on the artists in, within their record contracts, the artists pay for that. That comes out of their recording budget, you know, so that's, that's incredibly expensive. And so now if you think about, okay, or if you think about, you know, it as a rate, if you say someone's asking for 25, 50, even 100% of your proceeds, what happens if you sample two people on one track? What happens if you sample four people on one track or 20 people on one track? What, what's going to happen now? And so, right, we go through this math of looking at famous album by um, the Beastie Boys called Paul's Boutique and a famous album by Public Enemy called Fear of the Black Planet. And we just we identify the samples that are in each track on those albums and look at who they sampled and how famous are they and how, much, how long is the sample and how prominent is the sample. And just kind of do a rough calculation based on, you know, what we heard about pricing of samples to say, okay, here's what the bill would add up to be. Let's just pretend that, that they're all done as, uh, you know, royalty rates and as shares of the composition, how much money would it be? And it works out to the point where on every record they're losing, you know, um, $4, $5, $6, $7 a copy, you know. It's on that order. I mean, I'm not pretending this is like a precise scientific calculation, but the point is, is that they're in the negative. And with every copy they sell, it just gets worse because the rate is structured so that they have to pay everyone every time they sell a copy. And, you know, and this stems out of how hard it is in licensing negotiations. Let's say you've sampled, let's just keep it at like three people. All right. And all of them start by asking for 50%. Well, how, who, who's going to go down to 33% first so that you can at least break even, you know? I mean, what they're going to do is say, how about you tell the other two to go down to 25 and I'll stay at 50. And only the, you know, the, the most connected, most talented, best negotiating lawyers are going to be able to move people's prices in this space. So we talked to a woman, uh, one of the stars of the book, as far as our interviewees, is this woman, Dina LaPolt, who for a long time represented Tupac Shakur's estate. And, you know, a lot of people wanted to sample Tupac songs after he died. And, you know, she made a lot of money for his estate doing this. And she's a great negotiator. She knows a lot of people in the industry. You know, she's tough as nails, uh, as you can tell just from the quotes in the book. 
And I was really struck. She's the one that when the Bridgeport decision came down, she said she literally cried. Yeah. That so, right? So yeah, even, though, exactly. even though she sells copyrights licensing, she's on the. She was very upset about this. Yeah, so, exactly. Even even someone like her who makes a ton of money from copyright for her client, which by the way we talk about is a good. You know that that is a good thing on the ledger, right? That you know. Tupac's estate that his family could be taken care of, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, that's something that Congress really intended. That's why copyrights last after people die. Congress is worried about taking care of the next generation or even the next two or three generations. Uh, at least that's their decision. You can disagree with that as a policy matter, but that's something Congress intended to do, and it's a good thing for those artists and those families. So, yeah, Dina's like a huge advocate for people getting paid, you know, especially when it's an obscure artist that gets sampled. We have a quote where she talks about, you know, the singer Shirley Bassey who got sampled on a Kanye West song, and she says, pay her, you know, Kanye's got to pay her, which he did, you know, but, uh, you know, she's in favor of, of, of this revenue flowing. And you need someone like her who understands the system, who will advocate strongly for its benefits to navigate this system. So now take this back to you're just some artist without a record contract and you're making sample-based music and trying to release it either on your own label or release it on the internet or whatever, how are you going to navigate the system? How are you going to get these licenses? And of course, in practice, what happens is people don't. And, you know, that's fine. Sometimes the music still gets out there, you know, from the perspective of is the stuff available to someone? Sure. But if you don't get licenses, you can't be part of the commercial system iTunes and all the um, digital services that are coming out, uh, you know, the e-musics of the world, the rhapsodies of the world, you know, the gray album isn't available on iTunes. They're not going to sell something that's not licensed. Um, and so your audience, your potential audience, is so much smaller if you don't participate in this system. And so one of our points is that this system is so complicated and so reserved for just the people who have these super lawyers like Dina that it isn't a level playing field at all. You know, and that, you know, obviously that happens throughout our economy and our society, but this is an issue of copyright law saying some people can make this kind of music and some people can't. And I think that's disturbing on a certain level, you know. Uh, One of the other things, sorry. Music is the province of the rich, you know. Yeah. One of the other things your book does is, is try to outline possible ways forward or, or possible solutions, hmm? some of them involving collective action problems that seem unsolvable, but it sounds like there are a couple, <laughs> a couple innovative uh, instruments that might help. I, I wonder if you want to talk about reverse liability or your sort of double solution involving uh, registration. Yeah, uh, I'll talk about the one first. Uh, well, yeah, so, I mean, one, you know, well, actually, we can run through a couple real quick. So, you know, one of the solutions we talked about is fair use, and we already talked about that, but I'm a little bit skeptical about whether that's ever going to be made to work. I mean, you know, I'm interested in helping to make it happen, but I, I just don't know whether the community is going to get together and say, these things are fair use. You know, and when you, when you ask a lawyer, when we ask these lawyers about fair use, they all said, we never use it, we never claim it. You know, that's something academics care about, uh, but we don't use it. Compulsory license, as you say, would be really tough to get through Congress. And I think it's difficult because, you know, let's take the Sam Lee's perspective again for a minute. In addition to the benefits they get from the system of revenue, they re musicians we talk to really, really value having control over who, who samples their stuff and who doesn't. You know, being sampled and being having your music recontextualized to a musician feels very invasive and, you know, can feel really upsetting and, 
they want to have some say over who's using their stuff. And sometimes that even has a political dimension. Uh, you know, Chuck D told us that he doesn't want like a neo-Nazi or skinhead group to be able to sample public enemy, you know, uh, and which is interesting because, you know, public enemy has a lot of unauthorized samples on their work, you know, uh, and, you know, so he's kind of, he, and, and Chuck D understands very well that that's like not a consistent position, you know, uh, but he's just telling you how he feels as a musician, you know, he doesn't want his stuff taken that way. So anyway, the compulsory license is difficult because not only would the record labels not like it, the musicians would not, not necessarily like it, even people who are samplers, because it takes the control away from the copyright owner and puts it in the hands of the musician. Uh, they, they would, all that, as long as they paid, they'd just be able to cover things. So we look to more, you know, sort of more modest solutions. So the one that we like is this one you mentioned, registration. One thing that would really lower the bar, you know, and kind of, and at least work towards leveling the playing field about who can use this system and who can get licenses would just be to have a registry of who owns what, which, you know, people may be surprised to learn that that doesn't exist and isn't maintained in a way that's particularly useful to the extent it does exist at the copyright office. Um, it isn't a requirement of copyright protection to register anymore. It hasn't been since uh, January 1st, 1978. And so we don't have, like, a complete database of all the copyrights out there, and we're not tracking, like, who owns what when copyrights get transferred. You know, so unlike real estate, unlike a different kind of property, with intellectual property, at least with copyright, we're not keeping track, you know, uh, which is in contrast, actually, to other kinds of intellectual properties in contrast to the patent and trademark system. You know, you have to... You have to register, uh, you, know, you have to get a patent, you know. Uh, you have to have, you, know, you have to have an application, you have to have it accepted, it goes through a process. You know, I think there are good reasons why copyright doesn't go through that process. I don't necessarily want a government bureaucrat deciding which novels get copyright and which ones don't. Uh, again, for sort of free speech reasons, but, uh, it creates a problem because you don't know who, you don't even know who you need to negotiate with. You don't even know how many people you need. Uh, and so I think a registry would really help. And actually, I think there's real momentum behind that. I think it, it, for legal reasons, because of international treaties we've signed, it would be really difficult for the government to mandate that. We'd have to violate certain treaty obligations to do it. But I think the private sector is moving towards a place where they maybe want to build a registry themselves, that the music industry might, you know, might be motivated to build this. And it makes sense. They would get paid um, more if more people licensed. You know, the current system where where people are just not licensing and maybe going underground, releasing their stuff on the Internet is not getting them money. I think it might help them if they made it easy to pay them. You know what I mean? Kind of like with, um, you know, with iTunes and now with the streaming services like, you know, Pandora or like the new services like Spotify or a, a subscription service like Rhapsody or eMusic. You know, the music industry needs to make it easier for them to get money. Uh, it, you know, the, as they transition from the world of record stores and, and the world of, of, you know, lots of revenue and revenue always growing. And I, I think sample licensing is part of that picture. You know, I think they need to make it easier for other musicians to use their catalog, pay for it, you know, uh, generate some revenue for artists and labels. But, you know, but, but you know, the, the current system is, is just a strange one where within the major label system, people are paying large amounts. But uh, outside of it, people are just kind of opting out. Okay. The other good thing about that is uh, it would be insurance in a way. If you sample something, 
um, you're almost hoping that you don't hit it big, right? If your song is really successful after you've sampled something, you're the one that has to pay uh, because you're right. over the radar. Everyone else under the radar hasn't paid anything, and you have a, a huge uh, paid a check to write because you were successful with your sampled song. Um, and it might make sense for everyone to pay a small amount than for one person to be uh, bankrupted because they were successful. Uh, it's kind of yeah. A I really like thing. how you put that. I totally agree with that. And I think you know every one of these records is a ticking time bomb for someone. Yeah. You know, copyright damages are you know which we haven't mentioned. Uh, if you infringe something willfully, if the court finds that you did it, um, you know that you understood what copyright law was and you violated it anyway. Damages per work infringed can go up to $150,000. And, you know, that's just, that's just a, you know, that, that is not something that many of your, you know, your average independent musician can't risk that kind of hit, you know. So you do see people, you know, kind of, right, I mean, you want to stay below the radar, as you said. You don't want to be the one who gets, you know, attention. Uh, you know, the one exception to that would be, this guy, Girl Talk, Greg Gillis, who is pretty sophisticated about fair use, and so is his record label. They don't pay for their samples. You know, he makes these you know pretty dense uh, mashups that involve you know 15 or 20 songs per track, and he's not licensing any of it. You know, and he's just saying, "Go ahead, sue me. I'm going to defend my fair use. You know, what he considers to be his fair use rights." And you know, but he's unusual. You know, the point of talking about him in a way is that a he's taking on a ton of risk. And then B, he's unusual. You know, most people aren't haven't risen to that level of prominence and aren't, you know, sort of stubborn enough to say, I'm standing up for fair use, I'm not paying anyone. I was also just for my own sake, because I'm a little strange, interested in the KFR example, because it sounds like the parody that they've done or the mashup that they've done is a parody of copyright law <laughs> in a way. Uh -huh. They're actually saying, Go ahead, legal system, you know, make your try to make your categories apply to us. We're uh, turning them inside out. So the yeah. creativity issues and connecting with intersecting with law are really fascinating and, and multifarious. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, right, you can get into these weird things um, with this stuff. I mean, different, you know, sampling in different contexts. You think about when you think about modern art in the in sense of in the sense of visual art and photography. You know, what do you do with Sherry Levine, who's taking photographs of famous photographs? Intertextuality, it goes back a long, long way. What about the next person who takes a photograph of Sherry Levine and takes <laughs> a photograph of someone else? Turn the you know, does, it, does it stop being transformative at some point? Do you want a court to evaluate that? You know, it gets very it gets very difficult. I, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that stuff is really interesting. I think it, it goes to an important point, you know, that we try to make in the book in that artists are really resourceful. And they are going to find ways around this system. So we don't want it to be all, you know, it's not meant to be all doom and gloom. Um, you know, because first of all, we, you know, I think there's a legitimate interest in getting paid for certain samples. You know, if someone takes a huge chunk of your work and what's good about it, and it's really recognizable if you're training off someone's brand name, I think that, 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 that that's a situation where compensation is appropriate. I just want the system to work more smoothly. But in the face of these inefficiencies of the system, um, you know, musicians find ways to you know, they sample themselves. You know, if they want the sound of sampling something from vinyl, you know, they can, you know, there's this group Portishead that we read about that recorded music to, you know, had it pressed to vinyl and then sampled themselves, you know. Um, some people 
decide to just replay, you know, melodic lines that they're interested in. Some people find ways to do this. Right. And then other people find way, creative ways to do business like Girl Talk and they name their record label, you know, they, or they go to work for a record label that named itself Illegal Art. Right. And, you know, um, and you just find a business, you find a business approach that's, you know, that's kind of cheeky and kind of, you know, and it's going to sort of make you survive. Cause I think the issue, you know, the big, you know, there's a big question I often get asked, you know, why hasn't anyone sued Girl Talk? And the reason is, I think one of the key reasons is that, yeah, you just don't want to mess with someone who kind of knows the law, who's going to have people run to his defense. You know, they're going to be copyright lawyers who would take that case pro bono, probably. And, you know, they just don't, it just, it, it's, it would be just a difficult, potentially, you know, public relations disaster kind of lawsuit, you know. So people find creative things to do to work within the system. In terms of the, uh, the PR side or the, the public uh, interest side, um, I'd like to give you a chance to say some more about the Future Music Project and and maybe about the multimedia aspects of your book because you've got, it looks like, uh, some downloadable examples online. And there's yeah, a, so uh, actually thanks to, so, I mean, in this, you know, one of the artists we interviewed, this guy Steinsky, um, who was a, you know, who was sort of a pioneer in, along with uh, his partner Double D, Double D and Steinsky had these great mixes in the 80s. They were, you know, one, you know, among the sort of, um, you know, New York uh, early hip-hop, early remixing crowd. And Steinsky made a mix of a lot of the songs we mentioned in the book nice. uh, that's available uh, for free through our website. Our website is, uh, the, the website, you know, you can get the book on Amazon, you can get the book from Duke University Press, but um, we have a website for the book at creativelicense.info and there if you link through to you know mixes or mixtapes uh, you can get to the Steinsky mix um, that's very meta because it's a mix of, of mix or a mix of samples yeah exactly and you know we're comfortable that it's you know we're comfortable that it's fair use I would certainly argue that it's got an educational purpose it's a really really interesting he does really interesting things with it Um so that yeah, that is a that is a that is a cool thing. I'm glad you gave me a chance to mention it. Um, as far as Future Music Coalition, you know, yeah, this was a great. Um, you know, we got a lot of help from them. Just sort of the former executive director of Future Music sort of brought you know Kemper and I together, as I said before. And you know, the organization has continued to give us sort of forums to discuss this, you know, panel discussions and things like that. Um, I will mention one, you know. So on this issue, you know, I'm interested in general in the issue of how musicians are going to get compensated in the future, uh, how they're getting compensated now. And that's always been my sort of motivator for studying this, is I'm you know, concerned about musicians being able to make a living. So one of the things we're doing is something called the Artists' Revenue Streams Project, where we're trying to just survey musicians and find out all the different ways you make money, you know, concerts, selling recordings, you know, licensing to commercials or whatever, you know, how people are making money and how they think that's changing. And you can read more about the survey at uh, www.futuremusic.org. And uh, that, you know, that ties in in a way to this because in the end it is, you know, a big piece of this is about creativity and freedom of expression, but another piece of it is just about figuring out how to design systems for compensation to flow to creators, especially when the creativity is complicated, you know, and, one creator is using creations of someone that worked, you know, three decades before that they've never met, you know, 
how do you how how should the revenue be split up and how should you know what's the best system for having it flow? Right. I mean, it seemed like an incredibly innovative thing when Natalie Cole sung with her father. Obviously, she wasn't going to be sued by the estate uh-huh. she was part of, but that was a long time ago. And there's a lot of artistic traditions involved here that have to do with intertextuality, bricolage, all sorts of things that are really deeper in the, the DNA of musicians than the culture realizes. Um, you Absolutely. Remind, go ahead, I'm sorry. You oh, remind, no, no, go ahead. I was just you, agreeing. You, yeah. remind, you reminded me in thinking about Revenue Streams, my sister-in-law, Katie Curtis, is a singer-songwriter, and at a, for a stretch it had her own label that she was using that they, she named after their dog. So Sam the Pug Records was uh-huh. the label, and I, I guess that made him her agent in some way. Uh, <laughs> so there's a picture of the dog who was, you know, part of their shared enterprise, but was in no way in charge of her creatively because he was the dog. And right. The, the label was a, a different kind of arrangement. So I think there's lots of innovative stuff going on <laughs> place after place in terms of revenues. Well, well that's right. I mean, artists, I mean, that's a great, I mean, you know, of course you're joking, but it's, it's, you know, the artists are finding different ways to be in the music industry, you know, and different ways to do it themselves or different ways to, you know, different kinds of partners uh, to make it through, you know, and that, that's very interesting, you know, um, it, you know, people, you know, the relationships with traditional labels, um, you know, still exist. Some people are still interested in that, you know, to get a certain level of success and, and commercial appeal, it's still important. But, uh, you know, I think that there's also these other paths, you know, that are, that are emerging. And so that, yeah, that, that can be really interesting. I think that, you know, the way we see that in sampling is to just see how, you know, we try to talk about different approaches modern musicians have towards making music, you know, in the face of the traditional structures, what are they doing, you know, and there is some variation we talk about. And, you know, some artists who are more interested in licensing, you know, who are taking advantage of licensing to commercials or licensing um, samples or doing different things to just try and, you know, find as many ways to be making money off their music as they can, you know, and try trying to be resourceful about that. Terrific. Well, we've, we've taken a, a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. Did you want to plug the movie as well? It looks like there's... Oh, like, yeah, sorry. Kimber's I, I, got a documentary that looks so terrific. My co-author and, uh, and a collaborator, Benjamin Franzen, made this great documentary. It was on PBS. Uh, it's called Copyright Criminals. Uh, there's a DVD release... You know, and there's a there's a deluxe DVD release with um, some uh, extra samples and different things from uh, James Brown's drummer Clyde Stubblefield, who might be the world's most sampled drummer. And we, we didn't get to get into that story, but you know, Clyde's got an interesting story. Uh, it's worth reading about in the book. And uh, as a way to try to help him out, Kembrew and Ben, uh, you know, did this release that kind of um, foregrounds uh, uh, Clyde. You know, he's he's certainly a star of the movie. Um, but yeah, you can, so you can look it up. It, the, the, again, the movie's called Copyright Criminals. Terrific. And a lot of the interviews that are in the movie, uh, there's some overlap between the interviews for the movie and, and for the book, certainly. Um, we, you know, we've got a lot more of the, the legal nuts and bolts and different things in the book and the stuff about how the process of licensing samples work. That's, that's not in the movie. That's kind of more the heart of the book. But the movie definitely goes into setting up the problems of sampling and it's it's really interesting it's incredibly well done i was super impressed by it i, I got to see as you know being kember's co-author on the book i got to see the movie and its evolution and I mean, it was really interesting to start but uh the way that the visuals and the music are mixed in the final version is just really impressive so 
and that's sort of what we come back to, the fact that mixing has itself got its, a power of its own in the way you make the contexts intersect with the texts. It's true. Yeah, definitely. They had, they had help from these video remixers called uh, the Eclectic Method, uh, who are from England, and uh, the Eclectic Method just did an amazing job helping them with the film. So, uh, yeah, all credit to, to Ben and Kembrew and, uh, and the Eclectic Method and the other collaborators on the movie. It's really an interesting way to think about this problem. Well, I found the book extremely compelling, too, and very engaging and really uh, a terrific accomplishment. So congratulations. Did you want to say anything about what you're on to next as a scholar? You have new well, projects so I'm, I'm, helping, this? I'm definitely helping out Future Music with this artist revenue project. Yes. And I'm really interested to see how this survey works. Um, I'm, you know, I'm also, I, I write about, you know, radio and uh, anything connected to music. So uh, I've got a paper about looking back at the history of, of how radio has changed uh, that I'm hoping to get out soon. And then, uh, you know, I'm also, you know, I'm always thinking about how, um, you know, how we're going to resolve all these issues about yeah. the transition to digital in the music industry. So that's the kind of stuff I'm thinking about. What are you teaching in the fall, Northwestern? In the fall, I'm teaching first-year torts. Excellent. Uh, yeah. And then uh, in the spring, I'll be visiting the University of Michigan, and I'm going to teach uh, communications law, and then I do a seminar called uh, Music, Law, and Technology. Well, Peter, thanks so much for your time. This has really been a pleasure, and uh, it's an it's a outstanding, uh, not just a survey, but the uh, storytelling in the book is excellent as well. I really enjoyed it. It's the opportunity.